Um, so we're here with Ryan Gaines. Um, Ryan and I have known each other for a long time. Um, met in a startup workshop in Tennessee several years ago, and I've been working together ever since. Ryan is the CEO of Everly, um, a direct-to-consumer brand that makes natural sugar-free drink mixes um, and is helping people cut out sugar and drink more water. We're going to be talking broadly about e-commerce today and more specifically um, some of Ryan's observations and experiences around how to build a direct-to-consumer brand in an era when it's perhaps never been easier to start a store, but also perhaps never been harder to grow a store sustainably. Um, Ryan, thanks so much for being a part of this. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your story and, and how you've ended up as the CEO of Everly? Yeah, sure. Happy to be here. Um, thanks for having me. So I joined Everly in 2016, um, coming off a career on Wall Street, um, covering actually the big food companies and really just wanted to move towards the earlier stage of the market where I thought a lot of the innovation was happening and a lot of the exciting growth was coming from. So I joined Everly as the CFO um, 2016. We had a fairly large retail presence at that time. And um, pretty quickly we realized that we weren't going to be able to continue to grow sustainably in retail, um, super high cash burn, low margin. And most importantly, we couldn't really have a conversation with our customer and market to them effectively. And so we pivoted to a e-commerce model, um, pulled out of all of our retail and launched our store on Shopify and Amazon. And since then have really, pursued those two channels as, um, as the main driver of our business. Um, and then in 2018, um, the founder moved on to another opportunity and I uh, moved into the CEO role. So for the past couple of years, I've been uh, managing the company as CEO. And um, that was around the time that we completed the transition to, to online and um, made some, made some branding and packaging changes in, in connection to that transition as well. Got it. I mean, I think what's so interesting about that, that window of time is that you've had a real first row seat and, um, and kind of the evolution of direct to consumer. I mean, I feel like if we go back maybe like five or six years ago, you see really kind of this first real gold rush as companies come online with kind of the allure of um, relatively cheap advertising at the time. And then, the last four, four years, three years, it's become so much more competitive if we, as we've seen so many more companies come online. Um, so I want to talk about all of that, but can we go back to when you guys decided to shift away from, from retail? How did you, you know, it sounds like it was a, a cash burn and a margin thing. And, and you said, it, I think most importantly, we didn't have any relationship with the customer. So can you talk about like what it took to actually arrive at that type of decision? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was um, just the realities of running the business and the capital that would have been needed to continue growing through retail. Um, but also, you know, in retail, you have to continue to show growth in your turn rates and how well you're selling in the store. And we had not landed on a market 
gene mix that would have ever been profitable in the amount that we would have needed to spend to support the product on the retail shelf. And when we looked into what the cause of that was, we found that it was because, first of all, we didn't really know exactly who was buying the product. We kind of knew generally, but not specifically where we could have a really targeted marketing message. But then even if we knew who that customer was, we didn't really have a way to reach them to, to really target our marketing towards that customer specifically. You know, a lot of the retail advertising is, you know, buying an advertisement in the, the stores magazine or, you know, paying for a demo, you know, maybe like a radio or TV ad or something. But all of that is just projected onto a really big audience. And we needed to be able to get a lot more tactical and, and just talking to our very specific niche customer um, and also finding out who that customer was. So that was all, you know, those, those were all kind of big drivers of the decision to move towards online. Makes a lot of sense. So subsequent to that, the focus has been predominantly on building the direct consumer business, the, the stores on Shopify and then also Amazon. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, um, those two, those two channels and kind of the, the ratio in terms of overall, overall revenues, um, not specifics on revenues, but just kind of what's the, what's the ratio between the two? Yeah. So, um, for a long time, we've kind of seen about two thirds of our sales on Amazon and one third on Shopify that's held pretty consistent over, you know, the three or four year period that we've been doing this. Actually, just very recently, um, that's started to tip more towards Shopify. So we just exceeded 50% um, of our sales through our own store versus Amazon. Um, and I think there's there's a lot of reasons behind that. We can we can kind of get into it, but you know I think at a high level, um, the marketing that we've been doing that's really been working has been in a direct conversation with the customer which we've been able to do more effectively with Shopify than, than on Amazon. So to some degree, there's still kind of that um, distance from the customer on Amazon that we were seeing in retail and um, really owning that relationship, which is, you know, our intention in going online in the first place. That's kind of put most of our focus on, on Shopify versus Amazon. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense. So, um, you know, I think we've kind of moved into this. Like when I think about the phases of the last few years, I feel like there was this moment when tools like Shopify and Stripe had made it so cost efficient to actually start. And then platforms had made it so efficient to reach a niche audience. And so you have this explosion in the number of stores. Mary Meeker called this the SMB revolution. Um, and then everybody spent all of their advertising budgets on these platforms. And so ad inventory got a lot more expensive very quickly. And um, it was no longer a differentiator to be good at advertising on Facebook because CACs were getting way out of whack. And we saw the implosion of a lot of venture-backed DTC companies. Um, can you talk about like how you all have um, you know, met with that challenge, met with the advertising challenge across the big platforms. 
Yeah, you, you nailed it. I mean, that's been, that's been right on par with our experience. And, you know, when we were doing the diligence on moving from retail to online, the numbers that we were seeing online just looked so attractive in terms of, you know, the margins that we were going to be seeing and the, the cost of acquisition and really the ease of acquisition. And, you know, our early testing in, in 2016 proved that, proved that out. What we didn't anticipate is that that would go away pretty quickly. And we've definitely seen that, that trend that you mentioned where the cost of acquisition, you know, has really skyrocketed and um, there's a lot more competition and it's not, it's not as easy as just putting up Facebook ads and, and driving traffic. Um, so we've had to, we've had to innovate and get creative around that. And, um, you know, there's really two marketing channels that we've used to, um, kind of navigate around that cost acquisition game. Um, one is influencer marketing, micro influencers, where we find a ambassador that, you know, really has an engaged following and a high overlap with our target customer and develop a relationship with them, you know, give them product and swag and um, something to offer to their audience. Um, and and that's, that's proven to be a really good, healthy channel for us. And then the second is content marketing and along with that email marketing. So developing a, a body of, of content information, including recipes that um, our target market really desires and is hungry for. And that's allowed us to create engagement with a, a, a larger audience of people without just this uh, kind of blind, pure performance marketing spend of, of dollar in, dollar out that has, has not really worked for us and a lot of brands in this, this age of the cycle. Super interesting. I feel like kind of, you know, as anybody who's running a business, like the holy grail is, can I, can I build a business that is growing by word of mouth more than anything else? Mm-hmm. Um, and paid advertising is like often not the way to achieve word of mouth. Um, but paid in the past has been so alluring because of, as you said, so it's so easy and it can be so fast. Um, and I feel like that trained a generation of e-commerce marketers, um, to not do things that in some ways kind of take a longer amount of time to actually demonstrate results like content marketing. Um, and so it's, it's kind of interesting to kind of now think about where brands are and figuring out how to innovate given some of these challenges. Can you talk a little bit about, um, influencer marketing, like at the tactical level, what does it take to actually develop a real relationship with an influencer who can actually grow the business and, also, are you using any tools alongside of that relationship? Yeah, so we've tried a lot of different types of influencer marketing from really large celebrity type influencers to, you know, even the like 100 to 200,000 follower type influencer, all the way down to a micro influencer with under 20,000 followers. And there's been a couple examples of the larger influencers that have worked, even though we've had to pay them quite a bit of money. Um, but in general, it, it's more of an organic relationship where, 
you know, these might be people who are using our product anyway. Um, these might be people that, you know, are reading our content, our recipes and kind of engaging with us already. And, um, you know, if, if not, then there's a lot of other similar posts that they've made products like ours. They're, they're kind of the same lifestyle as our customer aspires to. And so, um, we actually just find them on Instagram. Um, sometimes they're, they like or follow one of our posts or another influencer's post, um, or, you know, we use some hashtag searches and things like that, but we just reach out to them, direct message on Instagram and kind of start a, start a conversation, ask if they want to try product and, um, let them know about our affiliate program and, you know, sometimes they're creating recipes with the product. And so we're sharing those with our audience through Instagram and email marketing. So that's some value that we're providing to the relationship. And really, you know, we have a pretty high hit rate of people just kind of posting organically without a fee um, for the, for the product samples that we're sending to them. That's awesome. And are you, are you kind of organizing this network in like an Airtable or an Excel sheet or any other, any other tool, or is it, pretty standard and straightforward. Yeah, it's all in Google Sheets that we, um, we track the activity, um, you know, reached out and um, how many conversations we've had with them, that sort of thing. We used something initially called Pico Dash to do some of the searching for, you know, you can type in like certain hashtags and um, certain metrics around followers to screen accounts but we haven't really needed that anymore. We've basically been able to fill all the supply that we need just from um, our organic activity on social media and kind of coming across these people. Super cool. Tell us a little bit about um, kind of how you've approached content marketing and email marketing and, and how um, the business's approach has evolved over maybe the last 24 to 12 months. Yeah, so when we first started, we really, viewed it as um, a test, you know, it kind of seemed to fit with this type of organic and um, customer relationship building marketing that, that we feel, you know, really strongly is the, the right type of marketing in this environment, um, I think at least, at least for most brands. But, you know, we didn't have any experience with it. We hadn't done it before. So it really started out just kind of testing to see what it was all about. Um, and one thing that, you know, we learned that I was surprised at is, you know, we didn't actually have as clear a view of who our customer was as we thought. Um, we kind of thought that our customer was it, you know, had a lot of different interests. So they might be using our product to stay hydrated. They might be avoiding sugar in their diet. They might be on a specific diet, like a low carb or keto diet, um, or they might just kind of be into general health and wellness or fitness. And so we tested content across all of those different customer profiles. And really surprisingly found that the engagement rates, the um, leads that we were getting, even the conversion to purchase rates um, based off those different types of content really favored the content around the keto diet. And so we started really investing in that content vertical um, and 
actually learned that a majority of our email lists are already on a keto diet or identify on the keto diet even before we started really investing in that that content funnel so i think one of the early um, wins with content marketing was was learning about our audience and and, and finding out which types of content resonated with them. And then that allowed us to feel more comfortable in pursuing a bigger, a bigger investment and focus on content um, centered around that more specific audience niche that is on the keto diet. Super interesting. I mean, I feel like kind of one of the themes here is how do you actually have a conversation with the customer directly? Um, and it sounds like the, kind of the first real learning from content is that it can, it can be an audience discovery tool. Um, what do you, like, have you guys invested tactically um, in any, like, how do you, how do you kind of establish more first party data on the customer? Do you think about surveys? Do you do anything like that? How do you think about that? Yes. Yeah, surveys is, is a big one. Um, you know, we try not to, to use it too much because, you know, we really want, most of what we're sending to the customer to be value to them and not, you know, asking for value back to us. So, you know, probably once a year at most, we're doing a survey um, because there's other things we're asking our customers to, you know, leave reviews and share with friends. And there's, there's a lot of other asks out there. So um, we use tight form for surveys, um, try to keep them really quick and efficient and, um, usually offer some sort of a discount on the site in return for, for filling out the survey. It's all, you know, just email based. And um, usually we have a specific question that we're trying to answer, you know, maybe what new product to launch um, or specifically in this case, you know, we wanted to make sure that our hunch about the customer being um, on the keto diet was true. So we kind of learned initially from the, just the engagement rates on our content um, through Matcha Insights and also some of the Clavio data on which emails were engaged and clicked on the most. And then we took that hunch and translated it into a tight form survey, sent it out to our email list. And the results favored the keto diet even more strongly than what we had thought from the first data points on Matcha and Clavio. Super interesting. So tell us a little bit about email marketing because uh, you, you switched, um, you started using Klaviyo what, like six to eight months ago? Yeah, I started using Klaviyo in September, um, switched from MailChimp and we wanted to start getting more targeted in our email marketing. So being able to segment our customers and lots of different ways, depending on how they had been interacting with our site, our previous emails, um, how long they had been on there and starting to really um, qualify them in terms of their interest in just receiving content from us or starting to get more product focused emails from us. And it, it was hard to do that. Um, MailChimp has, I think, some really kind of great um, beginner type flows, you know, you can target customers who haven't bought in a while or someone who's never purchased those types of flows, but you couldn't target people who had 
landed on this page once and read three emails and you know voiced interest in this type of content um, and then serve emails that are really targeted towards them and that's what Clavio has allowed us to do and um, really push our our email to the next game but also the relationship with the customer to the next level because it, it goes along with you know this philosophy of providing value to the customer and engaging with them having a relationship with them and really understanding them and if you know you're just kind of sending mass emails out with content that you know may or may not be relevant to everyone you know you're going to lose some people along the way yeah Clavio has also recently released SMS, is that right? Yeah, I've heard that. Um, we have not really jumped into that yet. Um, kind of uh, gone back and forth on it. You know, a, a lot of our team feels like they don't love getting marketing um, over text. And, you know, it seems more relevant for like a you know flash sale or a deal or something um you know most of what we're doing is sharing recipes and guides and um it's you know kind of more suited towards a longer form email than a short text message and so we we've not really jumped in on that yet we've thought about maybe some ways that we can go along with this kind of engagement and value oriented approach um, and, and work SMS into that. So maybe like, you know, reminders to drink water during the day or kind of some fun things like that rather than using it as another marketing channel. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about SMS recently and trying to wrap my head around kind of where its best application can occur. But what strikes me is that Email has, has, you know, I think more and more people have recognized that email is, is the most profitable e-commerce channel generally because there's no middleman to go through. Mm -hmm. um, and so therefore it, it is this like exceptionally important tool for extending lifetime value and nurture, nurturing the relationship. But it's still in some ways like a, um, it's still in some ways like a one-way conversation because customers aren't actually responding to the email though they may be engaging with the content. And SMS potentially has an opportunity to be, become a bit more two-way if it's applied correctly. You could see a lot of different instances in which it's not applied correctly, and that could be disastrous. But if you can, in some ways, try to impart the in-store retail experience where it's really a, a good conversation with an expert about the product, that could be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that type of application, I think, is, is super interesting, something that we're considering for the future. So you mentioned that the business has been um, has been going through growing through shop, your your direct consumer um, brand that is built on Shopify and also through Amazon with recently um, some movement towards um, Shopify taking kind of more than fifty percent of the overall business. How should how do you and what have you learned and how would you advise other direct consumer founders to think about Amazon? And so much has been written in the last really just a couple of weeks about Shopify arming the rebels and, you know, Ben Thompson coming out with the anti Amazon Alliance. And, you know, there's, there's a lot in this world that, you know, kind of describes Amazon as the big evil empire and Shopify as, as the, the platform that could compete with that aggregator. So talk, talk to us about, how we should make sense of all of this. 
Yeah, it's uh, there's been a lot of uh, big language around this uh, this confrontation between the two, um, and you know, I I even know some direct to consumer brands that you know are Shopify only, and you know don't even don't even want to go on Amazon. And there's partially a a margin piece to that, but I think the bigger piece to it is um, is just control. You know, Amazon really has a lot of power and you know we even still have listings that will get temporarily shut down for no reason and you know we have to do a lot of work to bring them back and um you know it's scary when you really built a big part of your business and you're open to that sort of a risk and then also you know the the, the piece of not being able to to really talk to the customer amazon really penalizes you for going around them to, to talk to customers. So a lot of the sales are, are blind on there. And I think those are, those are the lot, a lot of the negatives. On the other hand, you know, it's a massive sales channel and it's massive for a reason because it's convenient for people. And, you know, some people don't want to go to 50 different sites that make all their purchases. They want to just be able to go to one place and get everything. And so that's, you know, I think that in the current environment, we, we would never drop Amazon, you know, in favor of just pursuing, pursuing Shopify. Um, I still think that most of our, most of our customers, even if they're purchasing on Amazon, we're, we're engaging with them somewhere else. Uh, we can't really show that because we lose a lot of the data visibility on Amazon. But, um, you know, just anecdotally and from conversations I've had and some kind of manual data review, you know, a, a large portion of people who purchase from us on Amazon are on our email list or on our social media or came to our website. And so those marketing channels are still really important, even if the customer just prefers to check out on Amazon. And, you know, we don't really have a problem with them doing that. It's really, you know, giving the customer the option between the two channels. Got it. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like d depending on the business, Amazon is either a very important channel and it should be viewed as a channel um, or it's something to avoid. And that, that almost seems, it seems almost philosophical, but potentially it's also just kind of like how businesses have evolved. Entrepreneurs go to, go to channels where their businesses can find product market fit. And it's in some ways a pretty pragmatic question at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think there's also sometimes a, a bandwidth constraint that isn't talked about as much. And so, you know, if, if you're a startup and you know, you're putting out fires and, you know, you really just need to find one thing that works. And so you want to put all of your effort into one channel in the beginning. Um, I think a lot of those companies that have said, you know, we don't go to Amazon because of all these structural reasons, a lot of them eventually do go to Amazon when they get big enough and, um, you know, have, have the star power and find out that their customers still want to see them there. Um, and they have kind of that bandwidth to then expand to other channels. So, you know, I've, I've heard of both approaches where, you know, if you're starting from day one, it may make sense to pick just Amazon or may make sense to pick just Shopify and not split your time between the two of them. 
but I think for most businesses at a certain size, you know, there's, there's a case to be made that you should be on both. I think that's um, such an important point, especially for startup brands where, um, you know, probably best practice is be really disciplined in the beachhead you choose. And if you can establish the beachhead, then you have an opportunity to go diversify channels. But if you try to diversify too much too soon, it can be really, really costly from a resource standpoint. Exactly. Yeah, I think that you start to see compounding returns on individual channels because it really takes time and consistent effort to, to break through and start to see results. And if you're scattering those efforts across too many channels, then you may not see any of them work. Yeah. Maybe a good segue into if you, um, if you were advising a, a close friend or a family member who, was, who had a, a pretty good concept for a direct consumer brand um, and was hoping to launch this year, what are, what are several things that you'd impart to them um, given where we are and given the evolution of the space over the last several years? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question, topical question. I think um, I think the, the biggest thing is, you know, knowing the customer. And, um, you know, it's, it's not something that you can do pre-launch and then be done with. You know, it's a, it's a continual process of learning the customer and how they use your product and what their personality is like, where they hang out online. Um, you know, all of those things you're always going to be learning, just like any relationship. But from day one, I think there's even more emphasis that needs to be put on understanding who the customer is that you're going after and why the product is valuable to them. And that is going to inform a lot of your decisions from messaging and branding, packaging, um, and then even which, which channel to sell on and which, which marketing channel to use. And then I think the second thing, um, you know, once you're in the market is really knowing that you're going to have to find a creative marketing channel to build awareness and that the playbook that has worked for brands in the past probably won't work for you. And, you know, just each of these channels gets saturated and, um, you know, who your customer is, you know, they're, they're going to hang out in different places and different things are going to resonate with them. Um, what the product is, what the brand is, all of these factors go into the right marketing channel for you. And, you know, you, you can't just copy someone else's playbook because it really has to be nuanced and specific to, to what you're trying to do. I think those are, um, both incredibly wise and maybe just to synthesize, I think you said, um, you know, look at the, the process of building a really meaningful company is um, similar to building any type of meaningful, meaningful relationship. Uh, and that requires patience and continual practice. Um, you don't build a successful marriage overnight. It takes a lifetime. Um, and I feel like we kind of come from a culture that is in some ways so characterized by immediate gratification and rapid growth and it's it probably contributes to some of the you know the, the company implosions that we've seen in, in the venture world and the d2c world um where there's not been enough 
uh, commitment to constantly learning who a customer is and recognizing when that customer is changing. And then I think the second thing you said is um, really about agility. Um, I'm reminded of kind of the Andy Grove, you know, only the paranoid survive, but like something sooner or later will change and you cannot rely on the past's playbooks if you're going to succeed in this type of environment. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that, you know, marketing is really make what makes or break a lot of these early stage CPG companies. And, you know, you really have to have your, your finger on the pulse of what's, what's happening today and not what was happening, you know, not just last year, but even like last month, things, things change so fast. You really have to, to keep up with it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's close with um, a question about um, content that you read or listen to or watch that's been useful to you. Are there any books that you'd recommend, podcasts that you recommend, um, writers that you'd recommend that would help DC entrepreneurs make sense of the world we're living in? Yeah, so, um, I mean, this one's cliche, but I think for a reason, um, Lean Startup really changed the way that I think about building a, an early stage business. And um, I think probably a lot of what we talked about today echoes, you know, the, the strategies from that book in terms of, you know, really just having an open mind um, and not, and, and letting the data tell you what the next step is and not, you know, playing too far out into the future and really being agile and adapting with the, with the market and with the customer. Um, so I think that that is, you know, any, any, any new entrepreneur should at least give it a read. And if they don't agree with it, then they should, you know, articulate why. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good exercise. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I don't have, you know, a, a, a huge consistent funnel of, uh, of marketing content that I, I consume. Um, there's, you know, some good email letters. I think I appreciate like Matcha's, you know, morning, morning email with, you know, I've kind of, I, I get, I've gotten a lot of news on like what new Shopify features are coming out or things like that. just like from, from that email. So I have a few newsletters like that, that, that I consume, um, but you know, really, I learn the most about our marketing and about our customer from our customers and from our affiliates and bloggers. So, you know, all the bloggers that we work with, I'm all I'm on all their email lists and um, kind of really understand the trends that are happening in keto and what people are talking about, what the you know latest ingredients are, and things like that. That that's really where I've spent a lot of my focus in, in terms of content consumption. Very good. Great recommendations. Can you tell us where people can find Everly? Drinkeverly.com. Drinkeverly.com. Check us out. If you uh, want, want some keto recipes, you can find them on there. You can drop your email and you'll get a weekly, weekly roundup with some keto recipes that, you know, not, not just beverages, but all kinds of snacks and desserts and meals that you can make at home that are keto friendly. Awesome. Ryan, thanks so much. This has been great and um, we really appreciate it. Thanks, Ken. This is awesome.